Hey friends, I wanted to let you know that if you are in the Sacramento area on October 27th, I will be the keynote speaker for the Women in Construction Conference at the Safe Credit Union Convention Center. It will be a great day of programming and networking with a thousand other women and men in the construction industry. I'm so super excited and I would love to see you there. I'll pop a link to the conference in the show notes. Now on to today's topic. An expert is someone who achieves exceptionally high performance levels on a particular task or within a specific subject matter. They are also typically one of the most informed people in their field, and their achievements go far beyond that of the average person. So, if we want to achieve great things, we should work at being an expert in our field, right? Well, maybe not so fast. Welcome to episode 115 of This Shit Works a podcast dedicated to all things networking, relationship building, and business development. I am your host, Julie Brown, and today I am joined by David Fink, who says expertise, schmexpertise. And he's here to tell us why domain-specific expertise and experience is overrated. Welcome to This Shit Works, your weekly no-nonsense guide to networking your way to more friends, more adventures, and way more success with your host, Julie Brown. Here we go. Airbnb, Uber, Square, what do all these hugely disruptive companies have in common? They were all founded by industry outsiders, people who quite literally didn't have all the answers. Maybe having all the answers would have slowed these founders down. Think about another disruptive company. Dollar Shave Club. I mean, who gets their razors through the mail? By subscription. Seems normal now, but in 2011, this was a very curious idea. My guest today worked in the startup studio that helped take Dollar Shave Club from an idea to a $1 billion buyout in five years. And he credits the success to the fact that his team built a uniquely human connection in their marketing that cracked open one of the most consolidated markets in the world. We're going to talk about that and so much more. So without further ado, Dave, welcome to the program. Well, thanks for having me. That was a great intro. Oh, th- everybody always says the intros are good. So I, I, I thank you for saying that. Um, there's- yeah, it's, it's, that's the whole tone. It's fantastic. <laughs> There's so much to talk about here. There's like a lot to talk about here. I'm almost not sure where to start, but I think I'm going to start with a conversation on expertise and maybe why industry, in your opinion, industry outsiders are able to solve problems that some of us who are industry experts can't solve or can't see. Sure. Your timing is uh, on that question is particularly interesting because we we try and do a lot of that kind of educational sessions internally here um, with our team at, at Posty. And more recently, I challenged the team with thinking about problem solving from completely unique approaches, instead of continuously banging your head up against the wall, trying to, you know, to force a solve, maybe doing things the traditional way or the way that you've always done it. And I, <laughs> I have this kind of Fun of I, I pay attention to like some of the little things and and maybe non sequiturs in life and try and find you know and build connections. And my son takes guitar lessons, and his guitar teacher is a really thoughtful, intellectual kind of guy. And we showed up for a lesson last week, and he was working on 
solving these 3D Japanese puzzles. I think they're called Hamayama puzzles. You can get them on Amazon. They're like 10 bucks and they have levels one through six. It's kind of in the same vein of solving like a Rubik's cube. They're, mm-hmm. they're all different solves. And he handed me one and I was working on this puzzle. You know, I didn't have a ton of time, but I think it's about like five minutes. And it's the type of thing that I, I generally am good at. And it just wasn't coming together. So I was about to hand it back to him. And I, and I took a minute, I like pulled the, the puzzle back. I'm like, hold on one, one second. And I, I, I took the puzzle and I put it behind my back. And within like five seconds, I solved it. And that was like, I think the analog for the idea of why sometimes the best businesses or most disruptive businesses are built by people who don't have deep domain expertise. They have the unique ability to not be stuck in doing things the way they've always been done because mm-hmm. they had been trained over 15 or 20 years. They, okay. they do things oftentimes uniquely. They come at it from a completely different angle, the same way that I just couldn't solve this puzzle visually The minute I started trying to solve it tactically, it came together. Mm -hmm. So almost like you can't see the forest for the trees kind of thing. Well, you you certainly don't know all of like the challenges or hair on, you know, on a business, right? Like if if you you have spent 20 years working for, you know, four or five different businesses in the same industry, you know, you you knew all the consumer challenges, all the manufacturing challenges, all the distribution challenges, all the reasons why like this can or can't be done and why it's always been done the same way and why, you know, this is the way that each of the five companies you worked at kind of did things very similarly. You have the ability to look and say, hey, this is how I think this product service business workflow should be built or solved based on all the knowledge we have, all the technology we have, all the tools we have today. And I think a perfect example is Posty. And not to go too far down the rabbit hole, but we're working every day in an industry that's been around for 100 years. Yeah. Manufacturing direct mail. And there's no shortage of incumbent service providers that execute direct mail campaigns or um, that are working in some part of the value stack our perspective was that kind of the way that direct mail is executed today is is not far off from how it was executed 20, 30, 40 years ago. But yet there's been all this innovation in technology and machine learning and targeting and software and workflows. Why shouldn't a, a legacy industry also be able to benefit from all of that kind of those modern workflows and capabilities? So I want to get into Posty in a second. Before we get there, I want to ask you a question about uh, Dollar Shave Club because I am a subscriber to Dollar Shave Club, which I don't think I fall into the normal subscriber for Dollar Shave Club. But in 2000, I'm going to call it 13, um, it was 13 or 14, I worked in a company, in a tech company, so it was all dudes, and all of them would talk about Dollar Shave Club and that they had this subscription. And I was like, hey, sometimes I think I have a razor in the closet and I don't. So I want a subscription too. So I got a subscription to Dollar Shave Club, which I still have all these years later now in 2022. I want you to talk about that story and how how you made this sort of human-centric connection with the consumer base that built Dollar Shave Club, essentially. Well, look, that was an extraordinary experience, an extraordinary company, an extraordinary journey. I got a front row seat to seeing it all come about because 
Mike Dubin, who is the idea and an entrepreneur, he's also the face and the actor yeah. that was on all those, starting all those amazing TV commercials. Mm-hmm. He showed up at Science, the, the incubator and tech studio that, that I was one of the partners at, and had the framework for a rough idea of this idea of selling razors direct to consumer through a subscription model through the internet as a way to provide an alternative to you know the 10,000 pound gorilla who had been raising prices and getting a ton of pain for the everyday consumer at the cash register. Yeah, I think we all had that experience where we checked out at Target or Walgreens or CVS or the grocery store. And yeah. Yeah, we had a handful of things that were like, that's like, all of a sudden it's $150. You're like, $150? Yeah, and all the razors are behind the thing. Then you have to ask somebody to open it up because there was such a high theft item because they were so fucking expensive. <laughs> Look, that's a fact. And so the common theme in this conversation that we're having is holds true in Dollar Shave Club, where I think if, if Mike really knew how hard it was going to be to compete with a $50 billion giant in, in Gillette and kind of knew the challenges of manufacturing a very specific product and what it would be like to go up against that behemoth in a non-traditional kind of marketing approach, you know, maybe he would have tried a different business and that wouldn't have been the one. And, and so that's the beauty of someone like Mike having this really bright-eyed, bushy-tailed idea, recognizing a pain point, having mm-hmm. access wherewithal to manufacturing that he needed and being incredibly creative, but the business being born out of a very specific time and space where mm-hmm. a Gillette was not, right? Like Gillette, if you watch a Gillette TV spot, it, it's some of the most polished, scripted. Yes. I think they were using like like explosions and special effects and CGI and all this yep. stuff in, in their their advertising. And along comes this little startup with a handful of people initially that kind of told a really authentic story through a series of media channels that were just emerging, right? Like yeah. we all take YouTube for granted right now, but when Dollar Shape Up launched in 2011, YouTube wasn't a huge marketing platform. Nobody, there was no other right. things video at that point. Like yeah. he created it. And that, I think, somewhat like naivete, passion, creativity, inexperience led him to do something that you could have taken any number of a thousand ex-Gillette executives said, go build a competitive product to Gillette. And there's no way they they would. Yeah, they wouldn't have thought to put it in the mail and make it so affordable. Yeah. Yeah. And made it fun. And, and he's and, totally fun. When you think about the, I, when I think about the commercials for Gillette versus Dollar Shave Club, I hate Gillette commercials. I don't have a father, so I hate Gillette commercials because it's so sappy <laughs> and his commercials were funny and just, they were, I, I implore the listeners, if you haven't like Googled best Dollar Shave Club commercials to just do that because they are hilarious. You talked a little bit about in there, like the timing was good for that. And I know you've talked about previously the difference between a company found on like opportunism and a company founded on mission and a mission driven um, company. What do you see as the differences um, in the two? Uh, I, th- I think I think there are there are a, a, a number of differences, and it is something I really believe in. Um, and when I talk about it, like I, I don't mean to downplay one versus the other. There's tremendously successful businesses that were built opportunistically, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that that kind of, again, lends itself to that topic of 
the entrepreneur who has a ton of deep domain experience and he or she decides to take that wherewithal knowledge of a vertical uh, manufacturing process, a marketing angle, et cetera, a consumer base and build a business around it because they believe he or she believes that he or she can do it better well enough and build a successful company around it. Nothing wrong with that. Probably most companies are built that way. With mission-driven businesses, and Dollar Shave Club is one of them, Posty certainly is one of them, there's no shortage of them out there. Our businesses, it's not the term mission, like they're saving the world and they're solving like the most needy problems. It's that they've recognized some challenge or problem in the market, in a vertical, in an industry, and they believe that that there's a better way to, to do something, to enable the business unit, a consumer, et cetera. And so the core difference is that I think when you start with a mission, you're getting up every day thinking about how to solve that mission versus getting up every day thinking about just how you hit your P&L, how you get to market, how you go through each of the steps required to, to build a, a successful business. It becomes a bit more authentic. And, and where I think the power of that you know, lies is being an entrepreneur, building a company is very it's a tremendous challenge. It's a very lonely place to be there yes. are, throughout every day, every week, every month, every year, you're on top of the world. And then you feel like you're laying in a gutter somewhere mm -hmm. and you have to be able to fight through those low moments. And it's a, a heck of a lot easier to fight through those low moments. If you, if you have that reminder of why you started that business, yeah. why you launched that, that company, why you built that product or developed that service. And I, I just think that, that there's nothing more powerful than, again, getting up every day and having a purpose. And that, mm. and that purpose, again, doesn't have to be like feeding the homeless or putting rockets into space. It, it can be a, a very specific utilitarian pain point that you, maybe you had or someone you know has that you're looking to solve, but you're getting up every day with that, that purpose, that mission. And that's a big difference maker in the likelihood of, of a company succeeding or, or an entrepreneur, a group of entrepreneurs succeeding. Right. I've heard you say that we should have more questions than answers when we're starting our business. Some people might be listening to that and be like, well, shouldn't I wait till I have all the answers to start a business? Like, how am I going to start a business if I don't have all the answers? Yeah, I, I mean... Nobody yeah. has all the answers. Yeah. It comes up all the time. <laughs> I'm still searching for the person that does. Like, I can't wait to yeah. meet her or her. Uh, yeah, no, I think, look, I, I think anything in life, whether it's a, a hobby, we, we talked about our passion for outdoors and um, activities like wake surfing and mountain biking. You don't get into mountain biking by watching every single technical YouTube video you can find and going out and being an expert mountain biker. Mm -hmm. you, know, you get out by saying this is interesting and I'm going to, learn about the equipment and learn about terrain and body position and strength training and endurance and, and nutrition and breathing and all those things. And, and at least for me, like, that's always the fun of it. It's like, how do I continue down that, that path of, of information gain? And then usually I burn out in, in, in a hobby. Um, once I like, feel like I've gotten 80% there and then the, and I have fewer questions to, to, yeah. to ask. Yeah, same, same is true with business. It's, you need to know what questions to ask. And then you also need to know who to surround yourself with in order to, to be successful. And that's hiring the absolute mm -hmm. best at what they do and, and always hiring people more capable than you in, yes. in, um, in their roles. And, and that does, I, I do want to make sure to touch on that because while I think that it is true, what we spoke about at the beginning of the show, that entrepreneurs who don't have an ingrained way of thinking about a specific problem that they're tackling oftentimes make for more disruptive entrepreneurs or, or companies. 
you also need to be surrounded by domain expertise. Mm -hmm. And so in our company, there's a component that we want to do very differently. The way we work with data, the way we work mm -hmm. with prediction and measurement, the way we do execution, like those are, those are the way we leverage software. Those are all a very different approach to, to direct mail, our industry, but we also are producing and manufacturing tens of millions and hundreds of millions of pieces of direct mail daily, weekly, annually. And that's a very robust, complicated process. And so our entire ops team is coming in with dozens of years of domain expertise yeah. because that's an area that we do have to understand how the equipment works and how the vendor set works and mm -hmm. how the U.S. Postal serv Service works. So there are always, there, you can't only hire people and surround yourself with people that, that don't have any domain expertise and think that you're going to be successful, but you can take this blend of let's not get caught up in the way that things have always been done. Let's tackle our business processes from the way we think things should be done. But then there are going to be components within each business that, ha you know, that, that have to you know, recognize um, there's a level of knowledge and expertise and experience required to, to be successful. Yeah. So I want to get into Posty a little bit. So for the listeners, you own a company called Posty, um, which is a direct mail, like old fashioned mail, like gets delivered to your house, your business by a mailman. That company you say allows you allows direct mail to perform as dynamically as digital marketing channels and campaigns. And I'm thinking like people are going to be like, wait a minute, like everything we do is digital now. We're always on our phones. We're always on our computers. Like when was the last time like a piece of direct mail caught your eye and made you buy something? Like, tell me. OK, because I think there's multiple questions here. It's like, how are you creating direct mail that is as is as performs as well as as digital and also like aren't we at a time when we're like we don't even know what's happening with the postal service are we going to have mail six days a week or we're going to have mail three days a week like is it going to take forever to get there or what so how are you there's multiple questions there but first how are you outperforming and then two what do you see happening with the mail service sure i mean the, the mail service is really easy yeah from time to time usually politically charged there's headlines that pop up every now and then and usually weaponizing one political party or the other and it, greatly nonsense. Um, U.S. Postal Service is an incredibly well-run organization, arguably one of the, the best-run organizations in the world, um, over 600,000 employees. And when you think about the volume of mail and parcels that they're delivering, mm. all within kind of the confines of what's required to be a government agency, it's extraordinary. I, I've been nothing but impressed since being in the business. I, yeah, look, there's risk in everything. Delivery of packages and mail require gas. Gas prices right now are at all time mm. high. I'm down again. Like there's cycles, like all that stuff. Factors in so many different businesses, but that is not something that that keep us that keeps us up at night. The mail is delivered accurately, efficiently, at scale every single day. So then the question becomes like, how do you leverage that to, to solve some challenges in, in the marketing stack these days? And you're exactly right. I mean, for the past 20 years, we as marketers and technologists have pushed the commentary around, why are you doing all this traditional old school marketing you should be leveraging all this technology available in digital. And I remembered that talk track back as, as far as 1999, when I started in, in kind of the marketing technology industry. Fast forward to a decade ago, the behemoths of Facebook and Google became Facebook and Google and really powerful places to reach huge addressable markets, um, communicate with really dynamic advertising. 
leverage data and mathematics and testing and optimization and measurement. All that is true. And then those, those 10,000 pound gorillas became 20 and 40 and 60,000 pound gorillas and sometimes did great things for consumers and advertisers and sometimes did not so great things for consumers and advertisers. And kind of the world we're in right now is one that's where if you're a brand, you're kind of stuck and you have to work with the beast that is you know, social. And very rarely these days, because of the increased costs and the just amount of competitive advertisers bidding on those platforms, um, it's become really hard to find profitability in your advertising on those platforms. And so for us, the question is, advertising, when done successfully, is more about the right message to the right individual or group of individuals so that you're finding efficiency and you're spending your time telling your story to people that are interested. And direct mail has always offered that that ability in theory, right? You're able to send an individual at a specific address, a specific message, a specific mm -hmm. ad. And that's no different than digital. The, the challenge has been like, there just hasn't been any software investment to bring all the tools together required to execute direct mail campaigns sophisticatedly, dynamically, quickly, and integrate with the rest of your marketing stack. And so that was really our belief was like, hey, there's this huge, big channel. It's incredibly effective when done well. There's all this pain in all these channels that we spent the last decade or two putting so much attention into. And maybe building thoughtful software and technology to give advertisers the ability to, to interact with that channel more like our expectations would be in 2022, maybe that all of a sudden provides a ton of value back to the brand, allows them to communicate with that, their, their prospect consumers in a really meaningful way. And six years into our journey, I think we've greatly proven that hypothesis was accurate. Advertisers want it. Consumers enjoy the ability to engage with brands in a more um, tactical way. And it's giving advertisers a channel that historically was a bit more analog and now fits into their entire marketing stack the way that they expected to. Can you give us an example of a way that an organization is communicating with their consumer via direct mail? Sure. More brands have invest in building out their own digital properties and mobile apps and integrated, if they're uh, a brick and mortar um, or an omni-channel retailer, integrated their on-prem checkout systems, POS systems with their kind of back-end databases, which means they understand the consumers that are engaging with them, spending with them, why they're buying, why they're engaging, what products and services are resonating with them. From there, the marketers that kind of have those, those back-end pipes set up and are really listening to how consumers are engaging with them are looking for meaningful ways to, to kind of leverage that knowledge and insights to do a better job communicating at the right time with their right customers. The kind of nuance in, in direct mail or any channel is, is probably too much for any one conversation, mm -hmm. but at a high level, advertisers are, are spending a lot of time thinking about what they call addressable, addressable media, which is understanding the individuals that you're you're reaching and and then putting time into into developing the right messaging the right cadencing um yeah the right talk tracks the right images and we've seen just a dramatic improvement and investment in the way that that advertisers are including direct mail into those addressable strategies they can 
target someone on, on YouTube or on an Instagram feed ad or story. And they can also um, reach that same individual with a follow-up message through their mailbox. And, and it's not about any one specific tactic. It's about understanding who your, your potential audiences are, your best performing customers, the customers that are at risk of potentially turning and going and shopping with different competitive brands and, um, and leveraging that knowledge and insight into your future communication. The thing with digital is there's a footprint. We can analyze, we have click rates, we have open rates, we know what people are doing. We have ways of backending this and seeing exactly what people are doing with what they're sending. I'm assuming when you send something in the mail like that, you don't know. Number one, do you know if it got there? Do you know if they've looked at it? Do you know if they just threw it into the trash can? Like, how are we quantifying the money, like the effort we're spending on direct mail, advertising, marketing, communications, if we don't have a way of easily accessing the data from it? Yeah, well, that's the thing we we do now, right? So that's a big, or kind of three core um, ten poles that we focus on. One is targeting. Um, it's how you leverage insights and data to make better informed decisions on on who to engage with. Mm-hmm. Then it's simpler execution, and so kind of all the automation, so that you don't have to deal with complex procurement and sure. manufacturing. It just happens automatically. And the third is measurement, right? You have to know what's working, what's not working, and in indirect mail, there, there's a lot of different ways to measure. So um, just like with packages, there are delivery scans. So mm-hmm. the U.S. Postal Service scans every piece of mail, tracks it all the way through delivery, and our, our software connects with the U.S. Postal Service scans and so can, can notify uh, advertisers when individuals within their audiences have been reached. And then with regards to behaviors, at this point, most brands have ways to capture conversion, whether it's through a loyalty program or whether it's through okay. a digital footprint because someone's come online and there are identity graphs that you can build within your, your data pipes. And because with direct mail, the individual and the address that you're sending a specific piece of mail to, so if that person converts and you're shipping a product to them, well, you can actually do that match very mm-hmm. accurately and cleanly, arguably even, even more accurately than in digital with, with zero level of fraud, because you know that person was reached through a piece of direct mail, you know that person converted yeah. because you have a billing or a shipping address on them. It's a pretty direct match. And then you can then leverage that knowledge into making more informed decisions on future ad budgets and just rinse and repeat. And, and that's what we've always done in digital or in the more modern era of digital. And, mm-hmm. and all those tools are enabling direct mail now. Do you think as we kind of, think about digital detoxes and trying to unplug a little bit and not be on social media so much and be ruled by our screens. Like, do you think more companies are going to start communicating with their potential client base through direct mail? Yeah, well, well, it's a huge channel already. So $50 billion is spent in the U.S. in direct mail. So mm-hmm. it, it's not like this is a industry that's disappeared. I mean, it's a mm-hmm. monster, monster, monster channel. Um, we've seen gains over the last three years as well. So, so it is a growing channel. Look, I think that you know we've already seen some of the risk of relying on on big digital, right? Big tech, and so one of those big changes is the war between Apple and Facebook. And so, mm-hmm. you know, Apple rolled out iOS 14, and that made cross device tracking impossible or certainly very difficult. Every advertiser felt pain 
in some cases, like tremendous pain. And channels like Facebook and Instagram stopped performing in some cases completely. In other cases, mm. it started underperforming and they needed to work on rebuilding kind of their strategies. If you are an advertiser, are not investing in channels outside of social in particular, and arguably search as well, and certainly programmatic and digital, you're walking a very dangerous line. Google's been threatening deprecating the cookie for years. They just pushed that out another year, but there's concerns. Multiple states are rolling out refreshes on consumer privacy laws that are going to potentially limit the way that online tracking works. I don't believe this is a sky's falling thing, but I do believe this is a, if you're not constantly investing in an omnichannel approach to marketing, A, you're not maximizing performance currently, but B, you're not preparing for changes in the future. Mm. So I hope that advertisers are listening. I hope they're making investment. It doesn't just have to be direct mail, but um, it does need to be, it does need to be channels outside of the two or three that they're currently relying on is driven, are driven by big tech. So tell me how a company, if they're like, hey, we don't do this direct mail route, like maybe it's something we should look at. Um, tell me how you work with companies, how they can get in touch with you um, if they want to talk about, is this a possibility for their company? Sure. Our website is a great place to start. We continuously work on publishing more and more content and case studies and thought leadership um, content. And there's a very kind of easy contact us form right there on the website. And that gets funneled through our marketing team and, and to our sales team. I would say that that's the best place to start because you can get a little bit of kind of information on your own and get a sense for if we seem like the right fit for you to explore. And if so, we'd love to have our team engage and do some discovery conversations and see if your brand thinks that we could be helpful. And that is www.postie.com. Is that correct? Thank you. She said okay. that four times, right? that <laughs> That's is, okay. I'll put it in the show notes anyways, but I always like to spell it out because sometimes people don't make it to the show notes. So I, I appreciate it. that. This has been great. I'm so glad we talked. Thank you for coming on the show. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Great questions. I think you're asking all the questions that, that advertisers should be asking. And we're constantly trying to get out there and help advertisers stay ahead of the wave because we are in a really interesting, tenuous position with, with all things digital. It's not going to go away, but what works and what doesn't work and the level of scale is changing. One thing you said, I'm just saying, I'm just writing this down. One thing you said about the privacy laws and the online tracking, at least digital mail doesn't listen to you through your Alexa device. <laughs> yeah, look, I, I hear you turn, turned off. Um, on almost every device. We don't have Alexa. I'm not like a paranoid individual, but it's not about being paranoid. It's just, it's a fact. It, it is, they are listening. There's a reason why, and I don't have Facebook on my phone anymore, but there's a reason why you say something or someone near you says something and you open up you know, your feed and next thing you know, there's an ad promoting something that you're just like, I just was talking about that. Yeah. How, how coincidental? It's not, no. It's, it's not, not coincidence. Yeah. I mean, so are they using that in honest ways or maybe untart ways? Well, I think Facebook in particular, I think it's proven that a leopard doesn't change its spots. Um, right. Yeah, they're not a company that believes in privacy right. or believes in transparency, that they've made that clear over and over again. And yeah, yeah we have to, we, yeah, we should be thinking about that as consumers and advertisers. Right. Okay. That's how we're going to end it. <laughs> Thank you so much. You're welcome.
Thank you. Have more questions than answers. That's one of the things that David suggests. And let me tell you, the bigger my company and therefore my brand gets, I certainly have more questions than answers. But this is a good thing. This means I'm pushing myself and this company into new uncharted places. And yeah, it's exciting. Now, let's go back into the way back machine. There was a time when every company sent their Christmas cards in the mail, if they sent Christmas cards about it. Eventually, given the time and the cost to mail individual cards, most companies switch over to sending their holiday cards via email. In my humble opinion, it's just not the same. You want to know why? Because I don't print out your company email and tack it to my board or a wall in my office like I do with all the other holiday cards I get that come through the mail. Your holiday card gets deleted almost as fast as it was delivered. Maybe that's why direct mail is having a resurgence. We are so sick of the constant bombardment of online in-stream advertising that we feel nostalgic about direct mail pieces. Maybe everything that was old is new again. I don't know. See, <laughs> there's lots of things I don't know. All right. On to today's drink of the week, which comes with a little bit of a history lesson. Does anybody remember the old air mail envelopes with the blue and the red hatching all around the envelope? The U.S. Postal Service started using airmail back in 1911. The first airmail trip was wicked short. The first flight was a short hop from Santa Rosa to Petaluma, California, and had only three letters on board. Forty years later, it was the inspiration for the airmail cocktail, which was first published in Whitfield's Cocktail Guide in 1941, and then again in Esquire's 1949 Handbook for Hosts. Here's what you're going to need. The juice of one lime, one teaspoon of honey, one and a half ounces of rum, and champagne. Pour all ingredients except the champagne in a cocktail shaker. Add ice and shake vigorously until chilled. Strain into a highball glass filled with ice and then top with champagne. Garnish with a postage stamp if you feel like it. But why would you do that? They're like 50 cents now. I want to thank Kitchy Cooking for the recipe and the history on this cocktail. All right, friends, that's all for this week. If you like what you heard today, please leave a review and subscribe to the podcast. Also, remember to share it with your friends to help it reach a larger audience. Until next week. Cheers, guys. Hey, thanks for taking the time to listen. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast so you never miss a tip. And remember, you can unapologetically be who you authentically are and still be wildly successful. That's a fact. See you next week on This Shit Works. <laughs>